Good afternoon, everyone, and welcome to the Business of Recovery. I'm Chris Stiles, Dean of the UNSW Business School, and I'm delighted to welcome you here for what is sure to be an interesting and very timely discussion. To begin, I'd like to acknowledge the Bedjigal people that are the traditional custodians of the land which I'm speaking to you from today. I also acknowledge the traditional owners of the lands that all of us are meeting on wherever we may be across the country and pay my respects to their elders, past, present and emerging. The Business of Recovery is part of our very successful long-standing Business of series hosted by UNSW Business School. This series uh, is designed to offer our alumni insights from the very best in business thinking and practice and is part of our commitment to be a lifelong learning partner to all our alumni. And we're very excited that this is the first Business Of event to be done in a virtual format. We've been running a lot of events in this way over the past few months, and while it's not quite the same as being in the same room, we've actually had more people involved and engaged with the Business School than ever before. I'm particularly pleased to be introducing today's event on recovery. We see the press conferences every day, the numbers, and unfortunately, the tragic deaths. This is the reality that we're living at the moment, and it's important to acknowledge the human impact in particular. But at the same time, we must also have our eyes on the future, not just in a passive way, trying to gaze into a crystal ball to guess what will be, but in a much more proactive manner to work out what, should be go what we should be doing now to help shape the future. Clearly, we can't control everything around us, but the decisions we collectively make over the coming weeks and months will, to some extent, determine what the future looks like. So what trends are we seeing? What can we expect? And what kinds of decisions should we be making? That will be the focus of this afternoon. So let me thank all of our panelists in advance for their insights, as well as everyone who has joined us today to be part of this important conversation. And just a quick note that the discussion will be recorded and made public following the session. So if you do have to leave early, you won't miss out as the link will be emailed to you uh, sometime next week and to everyone who's registered. And please feel free to pass it on. It's now my great pleasure to introduce our moderator uh, for this event, Glenda Corporell, OAM Associate Editor Business, The Australian. Glenda has been covering business and finance in Australia and around the world for more than 30 years. She's worked in Sydney, Canberra, Washington, New York, London, Hong Kong and Singapore and interviewed many of Australia's top business executives. Her career includes stints as Deputy Editor, editor of the Australian Financial Review and Business Editor for The Bulletin magazine. She's a former China correspondent for The Australian and former editor of The Australian's Deal magazine. Glenda is also the author of Yankee Dollars, Australian Investment in America. And most importantly, she's an alumna of UNSW Business School. Thank you, Glenda. Well, thank you, Chris. And um, I think any, everyone on, on the line who's uh, a UNSW alumni will know it. it it's a bit easier to be, to be doing this than trying to find parking at Kensington. Uh, but um, any, anyway, um, we're talking about the business of recovery, and that was the um, that's been the theme. Uh, some might debate even whether we are in recovery. It's certainly this uh, this pandemic has uh, become longer and deeper than than we at all had hoped or certainly expected. But we are in it long enough to see some sort of clear. Uh, we're seeing some clear trends about what's what's happening. Um, and today we'll be hearing for, for um, we'll be we're sort of hearing about different people's insights into, into what's happening and what might be the Australia of the future. So um, I'm pleased today to facilitate this discussion. I'll just briefly introduce the panel panelists to you. Um, Guy Templeton. Uh, Guy is president and CEO of WSP Australia and New Zealand. WSP is one of the world's largest engineering consulting firms. 
It provides expertise in construction, transport, urban planning, mining, energy and environmental remediation. It employs 50,000 engineers, technicians, scientists, architects, planners, surveyors, construction professionals and environmental experts in more than 500 offices across 50 countries. And Guy is also chairman of the Business Council's um, Infrastructure and Growth Committee, and he's a member of the University of New South Wales Business Advisory Council. Um, Payush Gupta, he's chairman of property investment and funds management company, Charter Hall. Uh, Charter Hall manages equity in office, retail, industrial property, and social infrastructure. He's on a number of major boards, including the National Australia Bank, SBS, Eye Care and Link Market Services, which provides super fund administration. He's a member of the university's um, Business School Advisory Council. Um, and in his previous uh, career, he was chairman of MLC Life, uh, a member of the Workers' Compensation Insurance Investment Board and co-founder of IPAC Securities. Joanne Spillane is Executive Director and Global, Global Head of Private Capital Markets for Macquarie Capital. She advises government and corporate clients on access to capital for large infrastructure, energy, telecommunications and transport projects. She manages relationships with investors uh, in pension funds, super funds and sovereign wealth funds, among others. And since 2015, she's led the raising of over 60 billion in equities for these transactions. Um, so now you'll, you'll know the details of our panelists. We'll, we'll be having a discussion for about 30 minutes and then we'll allow for some time for Q&A from the, from the audience of, uh, of about 800, uh, 800 people. Um, so the, the, theme, the theme of today's um, discussion, uh, and I'll quote, accelerating the recovery from COVID-19 is one of the key challenges we're all grappling with around the globe. Addressing the pandemic's immediate impacts on the economy is critical, but how can we capitalise on the new opportunities that COVID-19 has forced into fruition? Now, Paige, could you start off, what, what do you see as these, these major themes? What trends are you, what trends are you seeing? Thanks, Glinda. Periods of disruption uh, often present headwinds for some and tailwinds for others. In other words, both threat as well as opportunity. And clearly we can see at the moment that a number of industries have been you know, very, very poorly, uh, badly impacted, whether it's tourism, um, retailing, airlines, and so on. But equally, there have been tailwinds for other industry sectors telehealthcare, telcos, home renovation, alcohol sales. So a period of disruptions are time for businesses to reflect upon uh, on their models. And I thought I might comment on three things that businesses might wish to reflect upon. The first is looking forward over the next few years, it is likely that we're going to be in a lower growth and a higher inflation scenario. Lower growth because aggregate demand is off. As a consequence, Growing revenues, top line revenues for most firms will be difficult. That might imply that firms need to innovate and think about offering new products and servicing. Secondly, scrutiny on costs. In a period where you can't grow your top line revenue, managing your cost become, base becomes even more important. So whether that's automation, digitization, right-sizing, offshoring, any number of uh, you know, sort of cost management measures. The second issue that COVID has, I think, taught us all is to embrace new ways of working, whether that be 
working from home. I think many firms are, are very proud how quickly their entire organization has been able to tilt to working from home. But there are downstream issues such as how do you monitor and measure productivity? How do you ensure that cybersecurity is safe across a distributed platform? What about culture? How do you induct new people? Um, another positive aspect of COVID has been more agile decision-making. Firms have discovered they can now cut through issues and get to decisions. But we have to also be mindful of compliance and controls. In this rush to be more agile, I suspect a number of firms may have, may have cut the corners on compliance and controls. So it's a balance. And resetting the skills base, thinking about what skills in this new post-COVID world might we need. And the final comment I'd make, Glenda, is that um, periods of disruption mean that firms might wish to reflect on their business models. Typically, business models under change when one of three things occur. Either there's a major shift in technology, steam comes along, electricity comes along, a microchip comes along, or there are shifts in legislation. But under COVID, it's whether there has been shifts in consumer behavior. And you could argue both sides of the coin. But I, I'd like to, I'd suspect that there probably have been some permanent changes to consumer behavior. And I think it behoves businesses to think then how that might impact their business model. Okay, there's a lot of points there, and we'll definitely come back to the implications of distributed work, working from home, um, all, all these sort of key themes that everyone's grappling with, either as an employer or an employee. Um, yes. uh, Joanne, what, what are the main points that, that you'd like to answer on, on this particular uh, introductory theme? We'll go to Guy. Okay, all right. Thanks, Glenda. I think for us, uh, you know, we're a global engineering firm and we're exposed to a wide range of sectors, infrastructure, power, water, but also the private sector, uh, developers, real estate. And I'd say what we're generally seeing is that governments are responding pretty well to the crisis. Um, I think the Australian governments and state governments, when you look around the world, are, are, are doing fairly well. They've got a lot of balance sheet strength and they're being pretty proactive in, in stimulus and trying to keep things moving. So in our business right around the world, we're seeing everything to do with government investment uh, continuing on um, pretty much unabated. And there is stimulus measures in there as well. There are those some issues around that kind of speed of mobilisation, a lot of people distracted, decision-making getting a little slower. And the private sector, I'd say we're seeing two things. We're seeing the weaker players really struggling, particularly in the sectors that Piyush had just mentioned, things around travel, tourism, hospitality, airlines. Uh, they're very hard hit, and we see that impact come through to our business immediately. But we're also seeing some of the much stronger private sector players looking through the cycle. And, uh, for instance, uh, you know, shopping centre developers who are still planning uh, for their eight to 10 year outcome. And they're, they're pretty much looking beyond COVID to where the opportunities are gonna be. So that's, uh, that's fairly encouraging. There'd be some initial thoughts, but I think we'll probably come back, Glenda, to what do we do about this and, and how do we capitalize on this point of dislocation to kind of emerge stronger? And Guy, while you're there, um, your organization is very global. Um, I mean, are, are what we're seeing here, is it similar or, or are there any major trends offshore that, um, uh, that we could look to and think, well, that's going to come here now? Yeah, I, I think we're, we're very, very similar, but we're just basically better positioned. And right. as, as much as, as we um, you know, worry about the implications of lockdown and lack of mobility, 
we've uh, we've got good levels of stimulus in the Australian economy. And every couple of weeks, I'm around the virtual table with my peers, the CEOs of you know, Canada, the US, Europe, um, you know, Europe, Middle East, etc. And I'll tell you what, I'm the lucky one around the table. Without a doubt, I am the lucky one. So the, the really the health outcomes in Australia and New Zealand are extraordinarily good at this stage, even with, even with the latest in Victoria, which is so very difficult to deal with. But even with that, we still look good. But we're seeing a remarkable similarity in the patterns in our business, uh, irrespective of geography. I, I was I was on a panel earlier this morning with uh, Ian Narev, who's the uh, former chief of the Commonwealth Bank, but he's now COO of Seek.com, and mm. they've just reported some results. And he was saying that, that the employment trends, they can see the same around the world. So uh, for good and for bad, I suppose, we are, in quotes, all in this together. But... Um, uh, on the other hand, I, I think there is a feeling that uh, one of the themes that came out of uh, discussion I was involved in this morning was one of the assets we have is a good, well, first of all, national cabinet, um, mm -hmm. but we, we seem to have a good working relationship between government and business, like so far anyway, um, which, which has come to the fore um, in terms of managing the crisis. Yeah, and if I can maybe add to that, Glenda, I think um, my perception is that business is getting on better with government than it ever has yes. and the different levels of government are getting on better than, with each other than they ever have yes. and if only we can just keep that going for the long term we'll be a lot better off but uh, for instance in that you mentioned the work I do with the VCA we have 14 groups set up around how do we take a business view through to government about what's important in recovery across a whole range of different areas really attentive really attentive they're listening very carefully and you see a lot of the decisions coming out have been reflecting the views of business because uh, speaking to a group of, uh, of business school alums here um, it's the businesses that create the jobs and yes. I think government gets that now to a, a greater degree than I've ever seen before. So, um, Piyush, you, you've obviously worked in a lot of regulated industries uh, in, in banking and in wealth and things like that. How, how critical do you see this relationship between government and business in getting us out of this crisis or, or reducing the negative impact? And, and, and are we looking forward to a, a new relationship between business and government in Australia that, that we sort of haven't had um, certainly in the last couple of decades? Look, I mean, uh, let's hope so. Uh, I'd echo Guy's comments that at the moment things to be working, uh, you know, working well. Government is a very important player. It accounts for about 25% of GDP in most OECD nations. Uh, importantly, good government sets policies and, and good policies can enable and poor policies can disable or create frictions and so on. There is a lot of good that could come out of the current COVID crisis. Government, if it's thoughtful, might be able to push through reform that has otherwise been difficult, uh, aimed at or, uh, driving or increasing our productivity, uh, investing in enabling infrastructure, reducing complexity, and also enforcing accountability. Often business or other stakeholders will call for governments to do more. Sometimes the right response is for the governments not to do more, but to enforce <laughs> that which is already in place. Often enforcement is the issue, not additional layers of complexity. On the other hand, if, uh, you know, if, if government um, actions end up in pork barreling of infrastructure, new projects, 
uh, in additional regulation, uh, in ill-targeted initiatives, then it could be bad as well. Uh, but I remain sort of optimistic that, you know, Australia as a community still has relatively high trusts in its government, and relatively high trust across the community. And that's one of the underpinning factors why I think we've been able to manage COVID as well as we have, apart from the fact that, you know, all island nations have been able to manage it. I think, I think our cultural constructs have helped as well. Uh, one final point, which is not a business point, though, is I do think civil liberties is something that needs, uh, you know, uh, watching because inevitably in the period ahead, governments will have a bigger role to play. And, and unless one is careful, uh, that could end up uh, on the wrong side of, uh, you know, decreasing our liberties. Yes, yes. Certainly there's a lot of confusion um, as to what you're allowed to do, what you can't, what was okay to do um, a, a few months ago is now, you know, a crime in Victoria or whatever. But um, Paige, see, um, uh, on, on the sub, your role uh, in terms of chairman of Charter Hall, where do you see the trends in property? I mean, Barangaroo was this place that was seen as the future of the CBD and now it's sort of semi-deserted. I mean, involved in the property business, uh, what are you seeing? Or will we never be, in the medium term, not be building um, Barangaroo kind of um, precincts? Well, if we decompose property into sort of the main sub-asset classes being retail, industrial, office, and then residential, clearly retail has been impacted. Uh, the, the strong rise to digital sales and so on has meant that large format retail centers have been impacted. Valuations are down 15% on average. On the other hand, industrial property is slightly up. As, the, as online demand has gone up, then the need for warehouses and supply chain infrastructure has gone up. And industrial property asset prices over the past six months have actually appreciated by 2 to 3%. Office is the big unknown. On the one hand, you know, clearly the big high-rise towers are currently not fully occupied. And the question is, when might they ever revert? Um, the decrease in, um, in headcount, though, might be offset by the increase in space requirements. Yes. Um, one thing that I found very interesting on all the boards that I'm on is that when we've surveyed our people who are working from home as to who, would, who might want to come back to work, either full-time or part-time, a very high percentage have said they'd actually like to either continue to work from home exclusively or substantially. However, when the same cohort is interviewed, once they've gone back into an office environment, a few weeks later, those statistics change. Right. So I must say I'm confused by office. I can see as many reasons for being optimistic about continued usage of office. Um, but equally, I think there might be some, some factors. I think the reality where it will settle is that some types of jobs, such as call centers, may well be more distributed. But for young people for whom the office is not merely work, it's part of their social life, it's how they get trained. Um, I think as soon as we are able to, I think that cohort will want to go back into the office towers. Yes, I think if you- residential, yeah, but if you're okay. covered, they don't have to do so. Okay, Joanne, uh, welcome back. Um, might need to unmute yourself. Hopefully, that uh, that can... So, what what are the main points that that you want to make in in, in terms of the introduction? Um, the the main themes that you're seeing. I think you'll have to turn off the mute. Right, that, I've, I've had I've had some technical issues at this end. I do apologise. 
Um, I, I guess in terms of business trends, you know, we were looking at four key trends impacting business before COVID. And of those four trends, I think three have only accelerated and potentially one has been disrupted. Um, and those trends really are digitization in a way that's impact, impacting all industries. Uh, the second is the transition, the energy transition to renewable energy. The third is resilience. And the fourth is urbanization. So I think certainly what COVID has taught us is that, you know, digital infrastructure is delivering an essential service. You know, working from home has massively increased our use of data and telco and assets that provide those services. So I think we have seen and are going to see, you know, billions of dollars more of investment uh, looking for deployment in that sector. In terms of the energy transition, again, we've actually seen an acceleration of capital looking for deployment into renewable energy. You know, in the first half of this year alone, we've seen over 130 billion US deployed globally and you know, pensions and sovereigns are continuing to allocate more to this sector. So you know, will we see a green recovery? You know, certainly if capital flows are anything to go by, I think that we are going to see an acceleration in the energy transition coming out of COVID. Um, resilience, I think, was always on the agenda, potentially more with a climate focus than it has now. I think issues of security, uh, cyber security, uh, financial resilience, supply chain resilience, you know, those issues are absolutely in front of investors' minds in terms of the way they're allocating their capital and the companies they're investing in. Now, the one theme that I think has potentially been disrupted, potentially for the better, is urbanisation, which previously we were focused on cities, I think now there is much more scope for growth in regional Australia as you know, employees who once could only work in cities, um, particularly in the finance sector, for example, can actually now work wherever they want, given we've proven up our ability to work flexibly. Um, I mean, you're, you're directly in the, in the financial sector and, and managing and allocating billions of dollars, and you've talked about some of the areas where capital is going. Um, I think one of the things that everyone's been surprised is how come the stock market's sort of booming and there's equity raisings and people can raise money at the same time as we're worried about the economy. I mean, um, in, in one sense, this is uh, having the super fund money. I think the $3 trillion is is the strength Australia has. But where are you seeing... Um, where the money's going and also what's behind this slight dichotomy of, I mean, why is the financial markets booming when we're looking at a weakening, weakening economy? Well, um, I think it's, a, it's, a, it's an excellent question. We're in the middle of reporting season at the moment. So, you know, what we are seeing it really is, um, is, is most unusual. Everything about this environment is unusual, but investors are basically ignoring this year's results. You know, it's almost as though the market has wiped this financial year and is only looking forward, not only to next year, but to the year after. So investors are focusing on quality of leadership, um, on the triaging of the immediate impact of COVID, but on plans to actually adapt businesses to a post-COVID environment. You know, at the meantime, you know, in the meantime, we've got uh, an enormous amount of liquidity in the system, not just equity, but debt. So if we think back to the GFC, you know, that was really a liquidity crisis, a financial crisis. You know, since COVID hit, so since March in Australia, we've seen over 90 of our Australian listed corporates actually go to the market and raise capital. In ASX has raised nearly $30 billion worth of equity mm. uh, for our corporates. And, and just to put that into a global context, you know, we've raised 1.4% of our market cap. Wow. Um, New York Stock Exchange has raised 0.8%. 
percent. You know, LSE has 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 raised even less. So the Australian market has proven to be extremely efficient at allowing our corporates to effectively raise capital to address, you know, this crisis. Mm-hmm. Um, I think that's something we forget that that the, there is that large pool of liquidity, but that has. Um, also generated in Australia a funds management organisation, a lot more sophisticated financial sector, um, which is actually respected around the world. I mean, uh, you probably get mandate. Well, you're a global company. You get mandates from overseas companies to to invest. Sometimes even back in their own country. I think with infrastructure. We do. And I think Australia has really led the way in terms of the collaboration between public and private capital, particularly around infrastructure. Um, and I think that. COVID and the recovery uh, really provides an opportunity again to really step that up. If you think about our industry funds here in Australia, they've invest, been investing alongside government in some cases or into fully privatised assets for 20 plus years. Mm. So of the large Canadians, there's plenty of offshore capital that's been very active in our infrastructure markets here. And they've proven themselves to be excellent stewards of these assets, good partners for government, good partners for corporate and they would like to invest more in Australian infrastructure. You know, my, my clients globally would like to invest more in Australian infrastructure right now. And there's billions of dollars that's been raised um, that is really unspent capital looking for deployment in such sectors. So I, I think there's a real opportunity here to tap private capital and particularly that from domestic funds, given um, some issues around FERB and nationalistic you know, employment uh, um, capital constraints, uh, to really ac- accelerate um, the, the collaboration. Private and public, yeah. The private-public collab- collaboration, exactly. Yes. Um, Payush, one of the things that you've, you've raised, and we're all dealing with it, whether, whether they're employers or employees, is this whole issue of, is it working from home? Is it distributed workforce? The ability and, and employers have changed their attitude in the past. They really thought people working from home was really being a bit lazy. Um, and uh, and then on the other hand, there are, as you said, younger workers who really want to be back with their workmates. So, I mean, looking forward, like if we're, uh, is this a temporary change or, or do you think there's a long-term structural change happening in, in our work patterns, you know, driven by this sort of crisis? I think there will be permanent shifts. Uh, I think it's hard to anticipate the nature of all of them. So I don't believe in the thesis that we will all start to work from home sort of permanently. As I said, there are sub-segments within our workforce that actually want to be working alongside others. Younger people have joined the firm, want to meet others in in that community. They want to be trained and so on. But equally, I think there are some roles which are capable of being distributed. Um, I think Joanne mentioned urbanization and regional areas. I think this will benefit more regional areas. I also think it'll benefit uh, older workers or part-time workers who now can actually um, quite reliably be available to employers uh, by working from home. Uh, Quite what the net impact of all of these forces will be, um, I'm, I'm unable to predict, other than business should remain alert, uh, to take up the opportunities to broaden the diversity, inclusion, and talent pool that I think COVID will now allow. Mm-hmm. Guy, what, what, what do you think? I mean, these are quite major themes, aren't they? It's how we work. Uh, and mm-hmm. that's why we're here. We're discussing 
the future of work, the future of business trends and for employers, employees, for families. I mean, what do you see long-term trends and implications that people have to deal with? Yeah, I think, um, I mean, every firm has probably been pleasantly surprised by how seamlessly the move to different working has gone. So for us, we've got roughly 45,000 out of 50,000 people working at home um, in some sort of COVID way, and that's gone pretty well. What that's helped us do is to move the work to the people rather than the people to the work, and that was already a trend in uh, having major design centres, uh, for instance, in Australia, um, when I was last in our Brisbane office pre, uh, pre-COVID, I was just walking the floors and I realised I hadn't yet come across anybody that was working on the Queensland project. They were all working on something in Victoria or South Australia or New Zealand. So I think that um, where work is done varies a lot. What I think we miss, though, is a potential for creativity and innovation. Mm. And you can do a certain amount of that online, but the things that are hard to do online is really spark off each other. You know, you're around a whiteboard, you go down, you grab a cup of coffee, you come back, you have a good idea. So that's one thing which I think is, is lacking. And I think the other is it's, it's reasonably easy to maintain a relationship online with somebody you know already. It's harder to build new relationships. So as businesses twist and pivot and you need a new customer base, how do you get to know them? You know, how do you build enough trust to be able to then transact business? So for us, you know, in our own marketing, for instance, we've, we've really just doubled down on existing client base because of that. So how far back do we swing? I think there'll be some permanence to a degree of, of work from home. And uh, as Pierre says, some job categories more than others. But I don't think it'll go all the way. I think uh, humans are programmed in a certain way. There's something in our DNA which means we want to cluster And uh, a couple of years back, I was visiting Google in Silicon Valley because of some work we were doing there. And I thought, if anybody can work out this collaborative online working, it's Google. And half the conversation was around how difficult it was busing staff in from San Francisco in the Valley. Uh, People want to be with people. And I I think once the health concerns recede, uh, my personal view is there's a lot of human nature which will come to the fore and people will, will want to be physically together more. So, um, Joanne, Macquarie's always been, or certainly in the last decade or two, a a global uh, company, so you're dealing with people all around the world, but how's Macquarie handling or how how are you handling this in terms of, you know, you're managing staff plus employee and employer, Um, what do you see as the implications for, for business? So we've got roughly 16,000 staff or just under 16,000 staff all around the world. And, you know, in some markets, we're now starting to transition where it's safely to do so back to the office on a voluntary basis. But we've had 98% of our staff working remotely somewhere all of the time. And I'd I'd echo some of the sentiments um, from Guy in terms of, and and from Piesh in, in terms of a lot of staff actually being very comfortable with um, our new way of working and with flexible working habits. Interestingly, we just went through our grad recruitment interviews and have hired our 16 new graduates for next year into Macquarie Capital, where I work. You know, the thought of not actually meeting them in person and spending time with those young grads straight out of uni to help them learn and to teach them about, you know, not only technical skills, but the culture and being part of a team. You know, I think that, Work from home has had very different impacts on different people. 
Um, I don't think there's any uniform response. I think for people, for example, that live by themselves have had a very different experience of work from home than people who are living in busy families, particularly those with young children. My expectation is that we will gradually uh, spend more time back in the office, that we will drift back in. People do like people. We actually like working with each other. And as I say, it's one thing for me, I've been at Macquarie 23 years, so I know people. And it's easy for me to communicate um, um, you know, without seeing people face to face, but to actually get to know people and to become part of a team, you know, I think we need human interaction for that. Mm -hmm. Linda, can I just uh, add a comment? I heard a good phrase from a business leader the other day from the perspective of a leader or a manager, and she said she feels that during this COVID period, she's lost her peripheral vision. Right, yes. It's mm -hmm. that sixth sense that you get when you walk around and so on. So I think the challenge is, for leaders and managers and supervisors of other people is uh, is different again. Mm -hmm. Yes, yeah. I, I just add one more point really about wellness. And, you know, in all my years at Macquarie, I've just never heard our leadership team spend so much time thinking and talking about, you know, our responsibility for the wellness of, of, of our employees. And, you know, that requires a whole different skill set of, of really carefully listening to people in terms of their experiences of working from home. I think COVID, you know, one of the trends that COVID has accelerated and I think is a positive that will come out of COVID is an enhanced um, notion that we're responsible for each other and that we care for each other. And it's not just employees, but it's the communities in which we work. Um, I've seen a number of examples at Macquarie that um, have surprised and delighted me in terms of our staff actually reaching out and, and doing things in their communities. Mm. Yes, I think there's something intangible that's emerging and it's easy to somehow downplay it. But when you talk to companies, there is this issue of trust and then people going back to trusted brands, uh, a sense of community, a sense of sort of health um, and a sense, uh, as I think we've in our conversations before, this was already happening, that the corporate social responsibility is coming to the fore. So there's some of these intangibles, which I think the leaders of today and, and, and the future will need to sort of take very seriously. Um, uh, I mean, it was already happening, but the idea that your job as the CEO is to make as much money for your company, um, I think that's well and truly gone. Um, one, of, one of the other points we've got, we want to be as constructive as we can, I suppose, in terms of um, trying to help uh, or trying to give some advice or, or, or some strategies. One of the issue, one of the questions here is how do insolvent businesses reinvigorate? But I suppose if I throw that open in a more general way, I mean, what do businesses need to do to survive? And I think Piyush, you're talking about, you know, cost. We've all got to be living with cost control and cost and cost reduction. I mean, do you see that as one of the key things that, you know, business leaders just gonna make some very hard decisions and people in the workforce are gonna to have to accept those or mentally accommodate those decisions? Yes, um, Joanne mentioned that the GFC was primarily about liquidity, whereas this time around it's mainly about solvency. And in particular, it's about solvency of the small to medium-sized sector in the main. That's where 70% of the jobs are as well, I might add, or might, might even be 80%. And um, solvency is a real issue for those businesses. When demand comes off, these businesses don't have the balance sheet or the fixed costs are of such a nature that they can't easily reduce. So I do really worry about how small business will, you know, will emerge to this. 
Um, clearly, as I said before, you know, wherever there's a threat, there's also an opportunity. So it may be that we'll see more M&A, uh, more industry consolidation, people partnering up, alliances. Um, these will be, have to be some of the new, more innovative, open-ended ways in which businesses learn to work with each other, um, both to manage their costs, to access capabilities, to be quicker, uh, and to access new customer segments as well. Um, Guy, what do you? What are the key things? The businesses under pressure. They're all under pressure. What are the forces they'll have to um, uh, bring to bear to to get through the crisis? And we'll be coming to questions soon um, as well. Yeah. Okay. Look, I think in the first phase, everybody does the logical thing, which is get control of your own costs. That's yeah. one thing you can control in this environment, and watch cash, which helps solvency. And for us globally, in the first couple of months of the crisis, um, absolutely, we were very much watching our, uh, our cash position and watching our costs. But also, with, within a week of this hitting, we were also then starting on how do we emerge stronger. And I think through any crisis, you always see some organisations, people, countries that somehow have come out of this stronger and I think we need a, a positive mindset in the country. There is yeah. definitely going to be hardship in areas. And that's why we have things like JobKeeper, for instance, to at least soften the blow. And while that is tragic, I think as a country, we need to invest. Because unless we invest and we put some chips on the table, we'll never come out stronger. We need to have business investing capital. And the businesses that have the ability to do that and place good bets rather than bad bets and can see the changes that are coming in position for them, I think it's very exciting. And I think that the trick is if we can invest in the right things, we make the country better. Mm -hmm. You know, so if I take my sector, um, you know, we, we've got planning systems which are very slow to get things moving. Yeah. Now's the time to say, how do we get a world-class planning system and investment system in Australia such that we get as little resistance as possible between the pools of investable capital that Joanne was talking about and really good projects. Let's reform that now and get the investment going. Uh, so I think we just need that balance between making sure we look after the basics, making sure we pay good attention around the, the human elements, but also not lose sight of this being an opportunity for Australia to really do an awful lot better. Mm -hmm. Yes, and, and and so Joanne, what what are you advising your your clients, helping them get through? Um, look, I, again, I'd echo I echo many of those sentiments. Um, I I think really the corporates that are going to survive and thrive are those that have really taken that three stage approach to this. The first stage being, you know, looking out for the well being and safety of their staff. The second, really, a triage approach to financial resilience, balance sheets and solvency. But the third and, and, and sort of almost most critical step here is really thinking carefully about the future from a strategic perspective and adapting to what the world post-COVID will look like. You know, what are those structural changes versus short-term changes? You know, for, for what sectors will hibernation work and for what sectors won't it work? And I think where companies think carefully about that and have a plan to adapt and, and to prosecute opportunities that will come from those changes, you know, there's capital that will support them. And we're seeing that now. Okay, yeah. now um, we'll come to some uh, from questions from our pretty large audience. And there's a lot of, there's a lot of questions. Um, someone has asked, um, 
will there be any industries that will be completely wiped out by COVID? What what might not survive? Um, Guy or Piyush, who, want, who would like to go on that one? Well, we've been discussing in my home whether yeah. we'd ever take a cruise again. <laughs> yet, yeah. yet I believe the uh, the numbers of bookings have been uh, been going up once you look out for a period. I must say I find it hard to see. I can't think off the top of my head of an industry that will disappear completely. Yes. Some of them may get smaller and there may be consolidation in them and there may be individual entities that don't survive. But, uh, you know, they, they, yes, we're in a crisis. Yes, it's big, but it also will pass. And I remember back in you know, the GFC 20, you know, it was 2008-9, in some ways it felt like it wouldn't, but of course it did. Yeah. You know, yeah. I ran a global tech sector business in the dot-com bust, felt like the sky was falling in. By 2002, we'd almost forgotten about it. So, <laughs> so COVID's more pervasive. You've, you've got, you know, a, an uncertain health outcome behind it. But, uh, you know, we, we will get through this. Um. Yeah, and, I, and I wonder what it's like being in the Spanish flu. That lasted for three years, and now it's, of course, a historical footnote. But, um, uh, yes, you're right, perhaps we need to, um, we need to sort of think, well, we will, uh, we will, get, uh, we will get through this. Um, some of the questions here, um, the role of manufacturing in Australia in future, um, I know that Andrew Liveris, um, it, uh, who used to run Dow Chemicals um, in America, very senior Australian um, executive. He's done a report on manufacturing to, um, which is handed to the federal government. Um, are we seeing um, a rise in protectionism or will we see a rise in protectionism? Is there a role for manufacturing in, in Australia um, or, or, a more, or a more active manufacturing sector in Australia? Um, I'm happy to sort of start on that. Yeah. I'm happy to start on that. I think um, there's, there's been a lot of debate around whether or not we can trust global supply chains and therefore whether you produce locally. I've had discussions with some global manufacturers, pharma companies, etc. And pretty much what they say is change stockpiling levels is the easiest thing to do. So if you think you're going to hit a crisis and it comes back into the resilience theme, what are the threats? How might they manifest? Uh, what do you need and where do you need it and therefore keep more. The, the economics, though, of manufacturing low-quality or, or sort of low-value-add goods in Australia, though, is just so overwhelmingly uncompelling that I'm not seeing a move. You know, we're not getting calls around how do you design a new building for a, you know, a, a massive new manufacturing facility. So I don't see the capital moving that way at the moment. Where I do see the opportunity is high-tech manufacturing, high-value add, which is where Australia has been trying for a while. And I think there's probably some good opportunities there. Admittedly, that gets tied into global supply chains. But also, let's not forget that while you and I can't hop on a plane and go to a business meeting or on a holiday overseas, uh, goods still travel. And there may be some reduced capacity in there, but it's not as if trade has stopped. Mm -hmm. Joanne, do you think that... that your investors would be investing in manufacturing in Australia or are we just too uncompetitive or will we shift to a new um, era where we do have to have some domestic supply and then that can have implications for a manufacturing industry in Australia? Look, I don't have any particular insight into, into manufacturing, to be quite honest, but from an investment perspective, it will simply be about investors assessing the risk return around manufacturing in Australia versus you know, elsewhere or other sectors, to be honest. 
you know, to, to the extent that there has been a shock around supply chain resilience and people are thinking that they need to onshore their manufacturing, I suspect that that will pass over time as we emerge from COVID. I suspect that will be more of a short-term reaction. And at the end of the day, the you know, economic reality around um, lowest cost and highest quality manufacturing centres will, will prevail. Linda, if I can add to that, I'd agree with Guy. I think the issue can be broken down into two parts. I think uh, given the geopolitical trends that are happening, then supply chain resilience is an issue that will be on people's minds. That, though, does not necessarily lead, lead to moving manufacturing back on shore. What it does lead to is perhaps diversifying your sources of supply to ecosystems that are producing at scale. 200 years ago, 98% of populaces were on the land. Uh, Post-industrial revolution, many were in manufacturing. Today, 70%, maybe 80% are in service economies. Yet we persist with the notion that somehow, you know, a tangible physical manufactured good or job is, is more noble and aspirational <laughs> than, you know, cutting someone's hair. And it's not. Yeah. So... I don't think that economically a priori there is any, you know, um, axiomatic reason we ought to manufacture. It does come down to comparative advantage. There are some sectors where short cycle times uh, are important and therefore manufacturing should be located close to the customer and advanced manufacturing techniques and automation you know, might be able to help with that. I think Adidas, or, uh, I think, relocated one of its latest plants back into Germany. It only employs 30 people on the floor, but they produce a lot of shoes because it's a lot of robots. So where it makes sense, yes, but not because of some nostalgic reason that manufacturing jobs somehow are more virtuous than any other type of job. I suppose there are issues like um, we are an agricultural nation, so you know, whether we can move to process more of our, our agriculture, take advantage of what we have, perhaps, and, uh, and evolve that. We've got uh, a lot of questions some of them are, we talked about that, an intangible thing, um, that the intangible issues around leadership and surviving the crisis. Um, how do you allow for uncertainty in your decision making? Um, it's a simple question, but um, maybe I'll ask, start with you, Guy. How, how, how as a business leader, do you, how do you cope with the level of uncertainty, yeah, which I mean, every day is a new change, a new yeah. regulation? I mean, just the, this morning, for instance, I had together a core leadership team and an extended one, and we're talking about that because we've got New Zealand that's gone to level three in Auckland and level two elsewhere, and we've got Victoria in lockdown. And there's a feeling in people of deflation. You know, we, we thought we had a plan, you lock down, you let the virus pass, you come out again. And of course, now what we're seeing is these uncertain waves as we move through, and that's going to go for some time. So the, the point I was making this morning is you've got to have a vision for how you emerge from this. You know, we need a picture of the country. We need a picture of each business to say, when we get through this, here's where we'll be positioned. This is where we're going to be competitive. This is the way we're going to work. This is what it means for our people. Because if not, you feel every little bump on the road. If you're aiming at the horizon, the bumps are just bumps. If you focus on each one, uh, it, it gets tough. So I think, um, I think that's one thing. It's really psychological around um, you know, not obsessing too much about the short term. And again, coming back to that point of investment, you've got to invest to where you think you might be. 
That said, the error bars on, on any forecast are much greater at the moment. So I think for us, we try to build as much flexibility in as we can, go through our cost base, what's fixed now, how do you make it variable? Uh, if something doesn't work, what's the backup plan? How do you pilot things before rolling out too hard? So all those management practices around keeping businesses flexible, I think everybody's dusting off the textbooks on those <laughs> and, and trying to build it into their operations. It's interesting that everyone talks about how they love change, but there's there's a, a lot of change and how can you cope with this much change, but we have to. But So, Joanne, you're advising, you're actually literally investing billions of dollars um, and uh, obviously you have a longer-term perspective, but, I mean, how do you cope with uncertainty and advising your clients making these enormous decisions with yeah. uh, high-level I mean, uncertainty? The, the, the largest investors globally are the pension funds and the sovereigns. And, you know, they, are they take a very long-term view to investment horizons. So, you know, the Canadians have a catchphrase, they're investing for the next quarter century, not the next quarter. You know, they've got a long-term liability matching perspective. You know, so, so they are willing to, to look through COVID to the other side and invest for the long-term future. I think one of the challenges that we're seeing at the moment is actually driven by such a wide variance in what the near-term future may look like. So if you're talking about a very large transaction, let's say we're putting together a consortium to buy an airport, you know, the variance in views as to when patronage will return to pre-COVID levels is extreme. You know, very sophisticated investors will all have very different views on what the shape of the recovery will look like. And it makes forecasting really difficult. So I think, you know, that is, that is sort of a nearer term constraint in terms of assets transacting, particularly where they require an alignment around a business plan. Now, that will settle over time. But I think investors at the moment simply have to have very wide variances around forecasts, particularly around revenue forecasts. Mm -hmm. uh, uh, Glenda, I'd uh, say I'd point to two things to help cope with uncertainty. The first is culture. And the second is decentralization. Most organizations are managed by thinking through and talking about the, the, the why, the what, and the how. But often it's too much is emphasis on the what. What do we do and how do we do it? I think a strong culture which your people own about why you are in existence um, can help in times like this because the what and the how is changing now all the time. And an aspect of that is decentralization. Uh, I think in the industrial society and industrial organizational forms tended towards more centralization with decisions, decisions made further away from the customer. If you look at the leading firms who have increased enterprise value over the last couple of decades, the, the new tech firms and so on, you'll find that decision-making is far more decentralized, far less hierarchical, far closer to the customer. So it's a subset of culture, but that form of structure allows one to cope with uncertainty better. Right, we've just got the, um, time for a couple more questions. One, one question that's come through in different ways is, how do we pay for, how are we gonna pay for this? We've got 200 billion in government de deficit already. Um, I think it's, it's gone up since the extension of the JobKeeper. Um, what does that mean? I mean, are we gonna have a, in, in five years time, we're gonna have enormous increase in taxes? Um, what are the long-term implications for um, a, a dramatic increase in our, in our national debt? Does anyone want to come in on that? Well, I'll give a view. Um, 
I mean, MMT or modern monetary theory is sort of, you know, the flavor of the month at the moment. So it boils down to aggregate productivity, right? Debt per se doesn't matter so long as you can grow your, 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 your GDP and so on faster than you're growing your debt. So, so if you incur debt and you don't invest it productively, yes, you may have a problem, but it's not a here and now problem. Uh, interest rates are going to be low for the foreseeable future, very low. Um, if you can find opportunities to invest where you can earn more than your weighted average cost of capital, go for it. Um, Australia's starting position is pretty good. Even at the end of beginning of next year, our aggregate debt levels will not be high by OECD standards. Uh, we still have a growing, the demographies in our favor, even absent immigration, we are still growing uh, total population numbers. So, so I think debt, debt is not something to be scared of in the short term, but we do have to keep our wits about us to make sure that we're running our economy in a, and growing it productively. Um, and another question that's come up um, in a few forms has been our relationship with the rest of the world, particularly China, which is our, our biggest trading partner and also has been an enormous source of supply. Um, what are people's views on our long-term international relationship and, and specifically with, uh, with China? I mean, that has our relationship with China helped us through the GFC, but I mean, you know, we don't need to go through all the debate about what's happening in China, but I mean, it's, do you, how do you see the relationship with China will be important in the future or, um, you know, could it help us through this um, pandemic or is, is that going to be a complicating factor that our relationship is, is not there um, because of tensions with China? Joan, you're in the capital allocation. Yeah, yeah. Um, two, two comments. I think in terms of where we are with the rest of the world, you know, I would call out the fact that we're doing better than most of the rest of the world. If, if you look at second quarter GDP falls, you know, the euro area was 12, 12%, uh, North America was 9.5%, you know, even Sweden was 85 and we're 65 So, you know, so far we've obviously been fortunate in terms of our management of COVID long may that last. Um, specifically for China. So we've been working with a number of large Chinese investors who've invested in infrastructure, for example, here in Australia and have been here for a very long time. And again, have been good stewards of some very, very significant infrastructure assets in this country. You know, I personally just take a patient view to the near-term geopolitical tensions. I think that Chinese investors um, want to invest in Australia. I think that they can uh, be productive investors in this country. And I think that over the long term, you know, we will have a, a, a good relationship with China. Mm -hmm. and, not, not maybe just add that the resources industry, the exports are holding up very well. Yes. And I mean, iron ore has just gone over $100 billion of exports for the first, you know, first time ever in a, in a year. And, and that's continuing to flow. Of course, education is Australia's third largest export and I think one difference to the GFC is we didn't see the population growth decline through the GFC. Mm. And now we're looking at 0.6% for the 12 months ahead of us versus the last 10-year average of 1.6. We're really going to feel that. So I think it's, it's really important to be opening up the borders to bring students back in as soon as we can safely do that. Okay. Well, great. Well, thank you very much for the panel. I'm, I'm concerned that we're um, coming up against time pressures, uh, but I think that um, our audience will 
realise that there, I think there's a lot of themes and ideas that can be got out of, um, out of the discussion. And thank you very much for, for um, coming today, but also contributing, I think, some of your best thoughts, because I do think the way that countries will get through it will be because of the leadership and not just the leadership of politicians, but uh, business leaders, thought leaders, um, and, and just individuals as, as we go through our perhaps day, daily lives. And uh, as Guy said, I suppose, you know, you've got to have some sense of optimism or looking through what's, um, uh, what might happen rather than be a bit like rabbit in the headlights. But I, I'm going to turn it over to you, Chris, because I'm, I'm, uh, I know we've sort of pushed the time limits a little bit. Thank you, Glenda. Well, um, I, I am looking at the time and there's only two minutes left. So on behalf of all of us at UNSW Business School, I'd like to thank all our panellists, Guy, Piyush and Joanne. And thank you, Glenda, for doing such a great job uh, of moderating the discussion. Uh, it's a real delight to have such a great ar ar array of accomplished alumni here with us. And I see I'm, in most cases your degrees behind <laughs> your desk. So uh, thank you, Guy. I'm sure yours is there somewhere, but um, uh, but, but thank you all very, very much. Uh, it's obviously an area of, of huge interest um, to us at the moment. And I, I guess for me, you know, what I take out of it is there are going to be tough times and tough decisions ahead. Um, but I'm coming away with, I guess, a degree of realism, optimism, uh, and there's a lot to think about in terms of the sort of decisions we need to start making making now to try and shape the future rather than letting it happen to us. Um, so to everyone who's uh, still online, thank you very much uh, for, for you for, for tuning in to this live discussion. I hope it's been uh, really interesting and that you left you with some, uh, some new knowledge and, and some ideas. Uh, as I mentioned earlier, the, this webinar has been recorded and it will be shared with uh, everyone who's pre-registered for this event. And it will also be made available on the UNSW alumni website. Um, and if you've got a few spare minutes now, uh, many of you won't, but if you do, uh, there's a link to a feedback survey on a web, web page and we, we'd be delighted to receive your feedback uh, as we do a number, a number of these types of events uh, in the future. So finally, I hope you enjoyed the session. Uh, thanks for being part of the discussion. Uh, stay safe and watch out for our, our next UNSW Business School alumni event. So have a good afternoon and a great weekend.